Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome to this panel celebrating the 75th anniversary of Richard Wright's Black Boys facilitated by the Mississippi Book Festival. My name is Celie McInnes, and I am a poet, short story writer, and instructor of English at Jackson State University. I had the honor of moderating this panel with two of Mississippi's most dynamic writers. The first is K.S.A. Lehman, who is a Southern writer born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. He is a professor and the author of the novel Long Division, How to Kill Yourself Slowly and Others in America, and the award-winning memoir, Hip. And the second is Charlie R. Braxton, a noted poet, playwright, and culture critic, whose poetry essays and reviews on various aspects of hip hop and other areas of the culture have appeared in every top major magazine and anthology across the planet. And now, let us jump into this great discussion that I was able to have with these two wonderful writers. And we thank you for joining us. Do y'all consider yourselves from Jackson? Because y'all aren't, both of y'all aren't really from from Jackson, are you? Right, no. Well, you, know, you know, I consider myself a dual citizen of Jackson and Macomb. Okay. And the reason why I say that is because I spent the formative years from three to seven at the Mississippi Hospital School in Jackson, which is not too mm -hmm. far from the medical center. So Jackson has always held a special place in my heart from childhood. Then, of course, I came back to go to Jackson State. So I spent four years at Jackson State, then eventually came back in the late 90s. And have been here ever since. So I'm you. a Jack. You know, I'm, I'm just as much a Jacksonian as you are, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, more so, yeah. You, you know, yeah. that's interesting. Do it, but you told me one time that UNC Lee should have overlapped uh, around USM, but y'all didn't overlap, right? Nope, we did. And, and what was crazy was that the person that introduced me to Charlie, right? I had to meet him in the National Guard when I was in the National Guard. So, <laughs> And, and so, he was a USM. He uh, was a USM grad. It was it was crazy, yeah. But we should have overlapped when I did the the two years in the creative writing program there before I left. But we just never we never. And it was like um, about a year or so after that, I was talking to Jimmy Kimbrell. Um, we went we went to guard together, and I sent he gave me Charlie's mailing address. And I was a fanboy, like, because, you know, because Charlie, by that time, Charlie was in every magazine and every anthology I wanted to be in coming out yes, of Jackson indeed. State. Yes, indeed. So I sent Charlie a, a letter, and he responded, man. It was like getting a, from your favorite artist, man. It was like, wow. I, like, danced around the table. Because, wow. like, you know, back then, you would put a couple of your poems in with a safe, yeah. a self-addressed stamped envelope, oh, you know, hope, they go hoping to God that it got there, and, you know. And when it came back, and I and I saw the face in it, you know, and he had put his name on the on, on the outside of it, man. It it was that was probably one of the really major motivating things to me to say, okay, you on the right road uh, to 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 doing with that letter I got from Charlie. So that was that. So I remind Charlie of that letter a lot. And also, just kind of answer your other question was that my father lived in Jackson and my mother lived in Clarksdale. So okay, okay. I spent that's that's why today you can't get me on the Greyhound bus because I spent summer, spring break, uh, you know, the, the ride from Jackson to Clarksdale is two hours and forty minutes on the Greyhound bus is six hours. Yes. Because you know, they stop everywhere. They stop at Joe's gas station and Joe come out and flip the sign over and they say Greyhound bus on the other side. So uh so yeah, so I was always between 
Clarksdale and Jackson my entire life. And of course, like Charlie went to Jackson State and, and just ended up never going back to Clarksdale. It's interesting that you talk about Greyhound because uh, that's how my mother took me back and forth from Macomb to the um, uh, hospital school. And we're talking in the 60s. So, of course, wow. I dealt with segregation. Wow. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, segregation is not something that I read in a history book. Yeah. It's something I lived through, you know. That's real. Um, you know, and even after the laws were changed, my grandmother always used to say, you can change signs, you can change laws, but you can't change people's hearts. That's right. right. And um, so it, it, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about Richard Wright, who uh, I consider one of my patron saints, um, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I, I'm assuming all of us do. Yes. Um, because at this juncture in history, his work is still so relevant. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Well, Charlie, I mean, picking up what, what, what Kiese was saying, so I would like to hear from you guys, you know, being, you know, Jackson residents, right, thinking about Black Boy, talk to me about reading Black Boy and kind of seeing yourself and your neighborhood in any way reflected in that. How did, how did Black Boy resonate just for you as a Jackson resident, for both of y'all? It was just the first time, bro. I mean, I, I, I want to, well, you know, I, I read... Uh, for my people before I read any any right. Mm -hmm. um, but when I first read right, man, I just felt like, I mean, really, man, what I really felt was I felt like, I'm just going to be honest with you, I was like, yo, niggas from Jackson can fight and niggas can write. That's what I felt. <laughs> That's what I felt. As I'm talking about, but I read, you know, it's like 10, 11 years old. Like, I just felt, I just felt like so capable and like what I was capable of, I didn't know. But I just thought, oh shit, like, that's Jackson right there, and 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 there's a different relationship. He got it, and I think we we should talk about the different relationship right had to the Jackson than I had at least. But I just felt like I was capable of flying and and, and fighting and soaring. That, that's what it, that's what it initially made me feel. Black boy initially made me feel like I could fly and I could fight. That's what it made mm -hmm. me feel. Yeah, and and but Charlie, Charlie, before you go ahead, uh, that that biography she was working on was the Richard Wright, the Money Genius. And, that's and, what a, a, yeah, right, that, right, yeah, right. That was, that was and, then, and then she was doing one with Aaron Henry. She was doing she was a joint. She was doing a joint on Aaron Henry too that didn't come out. Which okay, was, which she was just like that's how brilliant she was. But yeah, yeah, it was demonic genius first, and then it was Aaron Henry one later when when I was getting out of high school. But yeah, when I first read Black Boy, three emotions overcame me: joy, anger, and pain. The first. Joy was, there's a black man from Mississippi who lived through the same experience that I lived through, that I'm living through. It's able to write and is able to publish and is respected and his voice is his. Yeah. It's not him trying to be a New York writer. It's not him trying to be a, a European writer. He had an authentic blues-based black southern voice that was undeniable mm -hmm. okay the pain was the conditions that he was describing in mississippi hadn't changed much when i was coming up mm -hmm. that the that things were still the same mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was the pain mm -hmm. 
the anger was the conditions that he described <laughs> in the book hadn't changed much. And, 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 and another thing, I was also angry that I had to go to Jackson State to be introduced to the book. Wow. Wow. That's what really, because I mean, if you go to Jackson State, all three of you can testify. You're not going to leave Jackson State without reading Margaret Walker's Jubilee. Right. Right. That's right. <laughs> and Richard Wright's Black Boy and or Native Son. Yes, right. indeed. You're not leaving that institution. Right. But the fact that it, I could in, it graduate from high school in 1979 and only know Richard Wright's name, mm -hmm. mm. not being mandated mm. or compelled to read a book that could have changed my life then, mm -hmm. That's I had to wait until I'm in my 20s, mm -hmm. early 20s, to get That's this life-saving text. Right. So, See, when did you get it? Uh, my father, I read Black Boy when I was 14. Uh, my father had me to read, I read Black Boy first, then I read Native Son. Uh, and what's funny is that between Black Boy and Native Son, uh, my mother had me read The Eyes of Watching God. Yeah. Uh, so I read that, and it was, the, the joke was, your father got you reading all them burnt down the government books. You're going to read something. You know, you, you, you're going to read something about a black woman, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, it's funny years later, right, the whole polarizing sides that people have chosen, Zona Hurst and Richard Wright, that for me, someone who read that at 14, 15, because, see, basically, these are two people with an aesthetic. Yes. And, it's, and, and so I learned early that all black people have a right to have an aesthetic. We have three writers here, and all three of us have an aesthetic. And just because we have an aesthetic doesn't mean we have to hate each other. Right. And I think a lot of times we fall into that narrative of you got to choose some other black writer over Richard Wright because somehow that's, you have to stand or cake for your aesthetic. And I think that makes us, that tries to make us a monolith. Right. So I think reading Zordon Hurston between reading Black Boy and Native Son made it very clear to me that Black people are some of the most diverse people on the planet. And because of that, we're going to produce some of the most diverse aesthetics that's going to keep us from being one-dimensional and seeing things from a different light. So that was, yeah, so I was 14 reading both Black Boy and then after that Native Son. And, and kind of like with, with both of you guys, I knew, and I, and I wanted to comment at you guys about what it, what it said for me was that it took reading from an act of leisure to an act of ammunition building. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that so that after I read Black Boy and then and then even there I was watching God and then even Native Son, I was armed in a way. Right when the Bible says, "Put on the whole armor of God," right, put on the whole armor of Christ. Richard Wright was telling me that reading allowed me to put on the whole armor of intellect to defend myself against white supremacy. So I, I guess for me, you know, we think about how he basically has the note and goes to the library, right? Get his little envoy, uh, some books. Uh, tell me about how that passage struck you and then just the whole notion, both of you, of, of reading as, as a social political tool of, 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 of self-preparation. Well, the one thing I can say, growing up being disabled, I lived with my grandmother, and my grandmother was from the old school where handicapped or disabled people 
weren't to be seen. So mm -hmm. she didn't let me out mm -hmm. a lot. So early on, and she was born in 1884. Wow. So education was real serious to her because she didn't have one. Wow. You know, so reading was something that I used to escape the confines of my house and my room. And it taught me that there was a world beyond what I saw physically. Now, the good thing about my mother was that she worked as a janitor at a school and they were throwing out books. And one of the books that they threw out was an anthology called Dark Symphony. Mm. And it was there that I discovered, hey, there are yeah. black writers. That's right. But the majority of those writers in that book were Harlem Renaissance writers, post-Harlem Renaissance writers mostly. So they were New York-based writers, mm -hmm. with the exception of maybe Langston Hughes and Sterling Brown, who, who delved into the blues and the blues aesthetics. I didn't get to see or know that there were Black writers in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and like I said, we were told about Richard Wright in, in, in high school but we weren't forced to read him. Right. So reading to me became fundamental. And once you read right, right stood up to white supremacy. Right. With a, 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 a beauty, mm. with a strength, mm -hmm. with an intellectual honesty. Right. That I could not help but want to emulate later on in my life. Right. You know, um, when you read his essays, 12 Million Angry Black Voices, uh, Black Power, you know, right. those essays, you know, because for me, the right, the act of writing is a political act. Right. You know, and Sterling Plump once said something to me that I've never forgotten about Richard Wright. He said for a black man to grow up in the, in the, in the 40s, in the 30s, and to be able to read was a miracle, mm -hmm. but to be able to write was an act of defiance. Mm -hmm. It was a political act. And, and, and to me, us being able to write today is something our ancestors couldn't dream about. Right. And you know and, what? I, I think that's where Baldwin gets it wrong, too. I mean, and I'm a Baldwin devotee, you know what I'm saying? As but am I, as am I. Yeah, me too. You know, but I, I think I think he goes too hard at right, man. I don't know if we want to talk about that or not, but I yeah, think he I think he went as hard at right as Pac went at Biggie. You do you know what I'm saying? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy, brother. Yeah. He went after the brother when he's he he's supposed to eulogizing him and he's still going after him. <laughs> Like, what kind of eulogy is this? But what y'all, what you're saying, Charlie, is is that was my experience. It's like it was meta, right? I'm reading this man, right, who who walked and 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 maybe you know rode through the same streets that I've been on. Talk about the distinct practice of reading and the distinct practice of writing. And mm -hmm. and I remember as a young person. I used to always think that reading and writing were interchangeable. And like, I used to think about them as shields or weapons, but in black boy, you know, you can see reading being this particular kind of, kind of shield that mm -hmm. one has to sort of practice and master. If you want to like do what he says, like hurl those words against the wall, like to right. use the words to deploy them as, as weapons. But also 
I think what we, if you, I think a, a radical reading of, of Black Boy has to entail like how he was trying to get Black folks in Mississippi and Black boys like us to tend to tend to our mental health. But yep. nobody talks about that. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like yep. that to me, there's so much in there about madness and about him trying to find, find like some sense of stability mm-hmm. through the acts of reading and writing and of course labor. Um, and I'm just so interested to hear what both of y'all think about this because like, you know, Charlie, you have always been like the writer that I, you know, you were the, the you were the black man writing in the magazines. Right. I wanted to write in, you know, you were doing it. And then see Lee, like, I was afraid to write about Prince. Like, you know what I mean? Prince, like his, ma- he was so majestic. Like, I didn't know how you, I didn't even know how you could begin to write about Prince. And so like, where there was this library of writing about hip hop and Charlie to me was like the curator of that library. Amen. Here comes your writing and you writing about this dude who I just thought was beyond. So I'm interested even if right influenced how you wrote about a, a lot of things, but also Prince. I want—I mean, I'll, I'll probably jump in when I ask that question, but I want to make sure I got that question in before we before we stop. I'm glad you said that because, um, you know, my my latest book, "Embers Among the Ashes," shameless plug, um, <laughs> is a collection of haikus, and you know, Richard Wright wrote a haiku a day, right? And the book was written because Jerry Ward asked a group of writers, including you, Seeley, to, in honor of his uh, birthday, for the month of his birthday, write a haiku a a day. And I did it, and I was like, damn, Richard Wright did this every day of his his last life? And can I say, Charlie was the only one who did it. I'm the only fool who took yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to like day eight. I tapped out after day eight. You couldn't do it on what? <laughs> I turned in, look, I turned into Roberto Duran. No moss. No moss. <laughs> wow. It, it, but what I did learn in researching right during that period is that he made a living in France toward the latter part of his life writing liner notes for mm. jazz and blues records. Wow. Wow. Right. Wow. right. So he, he he was constantly thinking about the music. Because wow. you think about this. Black music and black literature literally walk hand in hand with each other. Yep. The the, the best of our writing reflects the best of our music. Right. You you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no so, doubt. And I'm constantly telling people that, particularly when it relates to um, what you do, C. Lee, what, what, what you do, KSA, particularly in Heavy, the music is there. Yeah. The music is in your work. It's, be it, there. It, it, yeah. So I guess I'm going around the world to say, Wright gave me permission mm-hmm. to write about because he wrote about the music of his generation. I mean, I'm thinking like, here's hip hop. It's my music. It's the generate music of my generation. I owe it to myself. Mm-hmm. I owe it to my people mm-hmm. to use these tools that I have right. to help explain to the broader world right. the, the beauty and majesty of hip hop from a Southern perspective. 
Right. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. keep in mind, this was at a time when New York dominated hip hop. Mm-hmm. East, East, East Coast, the West Coast wasn't even getting love when I first right. started. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, same for me, you know, and I'm glad Charlie hit that point because that was the thing for me. So Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, and of course, Member Rocky with Blues People. Exactly. Those three texts, right? And, you know, Richard Wright, uh, uh, Blueprint of Negro Writing, uh, you know, Langston Hughes in, 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 a, in a lot of different things. The whole notion that music was one of the few places where we were completely free. Mm. And... Right, it's 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 right, you know. Both Wright and Hughes said. I think Wright says. I'm not going to say even more definitively, but you know, until black literature is as free as black music, it will never be as powerful mm. as black music. Mm-hmm. And Wright ties that to black liberation. Yeah. Right. Wright is essentially saying, right, in 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 um, a blueprint to Negro writing, that music is upholding its part of the deal. What's not upholding its part of the deal, as far as right was concerned, was literature. Well, and Celia, I think that's a good point, but I think something that we need to have a deeper understanding is that our musicians were allowed to play their music, albeit without the drum, Mm -hmm. a lot longer than we were allowed to write. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Yes. So, 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 in a sense, the music has had a head start right. on the literature. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. You know, but I do think, getting back to what Kiestes talks about, uh, about writing being a form of therapy for right. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you read Native Son, you read that right is working through the trauma. Mm-hmm. that white supremacy wrought on mm-hmm. him as a young man coming through Mississippi. Mm-hmm. We have to start looking at the fact that white supremacy racism is a psychological sickness that not only affects uh, the, the victim, but the victimizer. Right. Okay? And I think right was trying to write through some of his own demons, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is, I believe that's part of the reason why Margaret Walker named the book Demonic Genius. Genius. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. You know, um, so, and, and he gave us a blueprint for us as writers mm-hmm. to go through that. So to stay there, particularly I want to get you guys comments on, so bringing in Native Son, so we know that in its initial conception, the last part of Black Boy is not included because Wright refused to paint the North as Negro head. Yeah. And you guys are both not just nationally traveled, but internationally traveled. And so what Native Son does is provide even more clarity to why in Black Boy, Wright is refusing to paint the North as Negro heaven. And so what I would like for you guys to speak to is, you know, you guys have have traveled East Coast and North much more than I have, right? I've sparingly done so. To think about what Wright is doing in the last, like what what is known as American hunger in Black Boy, and your thoughts about Wright being 
you know, not just at the vanguard, but first to say that, hey, the racism in the North is not any less than the racism. And, and okay, I said, you worked up there, you know, a, a long time, so you got to see it every day. But to have you guys talk a little bit about Wright being, right, it, 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 put it this way. In the year that Wright was writing, we know how much easier it would have been for him to just sell out and say, no, I'm going to paint the North. And to talk about the, not just the intellect, but the courage it took for Wright to say, I would rather you remove that portion of the book than you make a liar out of me. Could you talk a little bit about how that, that part of the Black Boy spoke to both of y'all as you guys have been, 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 been national and international travelers? Okay. Kiesa, uh, you want to go first? I mean, I'll be brief, man. You know, I, I'm going to be, you know, like, there's this piece, right, talk, where he writes, we talk, where he calls himself a rootless man. Mm-hmm. And being from Mississippi, I, I took, I took, I felt some way about that. Do you know what I'm saying? Because, because, because I, I feel like in some ways we are from the, 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 the greatest, most richest roots that one can be from. But I think what I often did and what I think critics are right often do is they, they forget what you just said, Seeley. Like he wasn't leaving the South and praising the North. Yes, he left the South with, with the hopes that the North was going to be heaven. You know what I'm saying? But shit, right. that, he, he, he shows us through discovery and the discovery of disillusionment. I mean, like evocatively that that shit is not what he thought it was going to be. Right. And I think we see something about his principle and what he did. And so I have to keep reminding myself one, I don't know what it was like to live through those, through that time he lived, but also it wasn't like he was valorizing the North. Now one might argue that he might've valorized Europe in some way. I'm not right. sure. Right. About that, but he did not valorize the North. He did not valorize Chicago. He wasn't, you know, at the end, he was more critical, I think, of them and like the white folks up there and some of the black folks than he was in Mississippi, you know. Right. So I love yeah. that question, Charlie. What you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that right um, with American Hunger, which I, I read it as American Hunger, I do know now that it's been restored. I think that right understood the dangers of painting to Southerners and to the world that the North was better than the South. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that the people who run the, 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 the publishing industry at that time thought of themselves as better than Southerners. Right. The Northern establishment, I mean, even among Black folk who, who were born and raised in the North, <laughs> I mean, I'm, well, let's just keep it funky. Right. And real. <laughs> <That's real. laughs> let's, let's keep it funky and real. <laughs> there is a, 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 a geocentric biasness toward black people from the South. Right. And I mean, right telling the Northern liberal establishment that, hey, you're racist too. Right. While you're sitting around there pointing the finger and saying, look at those hick Southerners, those redneck Southerners, ooh, you are just as racist. And as a matter of fact, your racist is a little bit more insidious because at least in the South, I know where they stand. There we go. There we go. I know where they stand in the South. I, I know I have to watch myself. I know that I have to keep my guard up. But you are the type of racist that'll stab me in the back and say, what's wrong? Are you all right? (laughs) 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that was brave of him to even write that and submit that to him because that could have just 86 his career right then and there. Right. That's right. But I think he understood, you know, because I know when I'm down, when I was down south, I thought that the northern white person wasn't as racist as the not the southerner. Right. Right. The white southerner. And then when you get to New York, you realize, oh wow. Oh my God. <laughs> they they just hey they they that's their northern that's their southern cousins. <laughs> <laughs> they know how to use the, the N word just as well. <laughs> you know and 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 the police are just as bad. Right. Bro, I, I think they worse, bro. I'm not gonna lie to you, but that might be another story, man. They 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 don't they they uh you know my my my, my worst run-ins with police in my life have all happened oh, Pennsylvania no. on Pennsylvania on up. I mean, you know, I had some shit happen and where we from, but but also, you know what it did to me is that because so much of what I experienced in the north was, you know, white supremacy, but that regional, that, that regionalism that you're talking about, I just, I don't want to lose that. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this, this kind of like, wow, this, not just this black boy is literate, but like this Southern black boy is literate there you go. and not afraid. Do you know? And so, and so when I experienced that shit, that, 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 that kind of thing up North, it, 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 it made me madder at the white boys down south. Cause I'm like, don't you see? They don't think you shit either, bro. Right. Cause you from there. Cause we, you know what? We know about college. We know about fucking yams, my nigga. We know, we know about okra. We know that. And they right. think you, they think you ain't shit. Cause you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So, so anyway, like that read and write, it, 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 it elicits all these, all these feelings, but the criticism of right is almost as electric as the text of 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 right. Do you know what right. I mean? And and, and, I, yeah. and I still I, I I wonder, y'all. I mean, do we want to live in a Mississippi where right is as valued and celebrated as Faulkner? Let me just ask that question. I, I think we. The, the, I think here's we, the thing. Let me say this. Go ahead, Charles. PSA. In a in, in a perfect world, right should be. In Mississippi, right. above all states, yes, should be lionized. Right, yes, should be lionized. Yes. There should be all kinds of of festivals here. There should be all kinds of books coming out of here. But the fact that he's black, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Let's just play it. Let's let's play it forward. He's black, and he's a Mississippian. Lets you know that the white establishment right in Mississippi did not like and the fact that he was a communist. Oh yeah. I gotta talk about let's, let's, not, let's, let's, let's keep it one hundred. Yeah. You know, how dare I mean how dare this Negro think <laughs> for himself to not only criticize white supremacy but to criticize the capitalist system. Ooh, ooh. But I want to live in a world where Richard Wright is, is lionized as well as Faulkner, uh, uh, Eudora Wealthy, yeah, he deserves that, right? And and I think though that the other part is we need a lot more truth telling about the lionization of Faulkner. Yes, Faulkner yeah. actually expelled and kicked out of Ole Miss because the uppity white folks thought he didn't talk the right way. 
There it is. So I, whenever I see a lot of, quote, Faulkner scholars, right, who want to love Faulkner, I'm always asking them, which Faulkner do you love? Do you love the Faulkner who told you your antebellum need to go? Like, do, do, you, do you love the Faulkner, right, who basically said that the way that you're holding on to your confederacy is as destructive to you as the white people you're trying to destroy? Mm. So I think that in that case, Faulkner, what we don't want is to have right so popularized that we he lose the key. Right, that he sanitized. Faulkner has been so popularized that he sanitized that the bite is gone. And only the true Faulkner scholars understand that bite. And, and so I think the other testament then, the right is, he's been unable to be sanitized. So since he can't be sanitized, he just needs to be pushed to the side. Yeah. And I think that the other point, again, like you, not to get too far into it, but I think the point that needs to be said, as I said about Hurston and Wright, what we have to understand, with one of the things, that the way I deal with Baldwin and Wright is the way I deal with Boris and Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, I don't really care, because I don't want you to choose sides. I don't really care which side you choose. Just understand that Booker T. Washington had been something that Boris would never be able to understand, which was a slave. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that probably the only failing of the boss is that he never took into consideration how being a slave impacts one psyche. Right. Now, that's not saying that we're going to admonish or ignore the negative things that Washington did. Let's be clear. So I think that for Baldwin, I think Baldwin needs to, needed to understand that when you were born, where you were born, and under the conditions you were born, is going to dictate the types of characters that you create. Yes. And so that, go ahead, Charles. I think, I think later on in his life, he may have come to understand that. Well, Charles, that's because the same people who championed him began saying Baldwin had gone bitter. They him, exactly. They turned on him. Yeah, they turned on Baldwin. They turned on Baldwin. So I think toward the later, latter end of his life, he understood it. But by that time, the damage, he had done the damage. There you go. Because of course, white supremacy and the games that white supremacy played they, especially then, it, it's always there can only be one black writer. <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying? There can only be one black leader. <laughs> there can only be one black thought. There can only be one black aesthetic. And, and, and the old black aesthetic has to attack, the new black aesthetic has to attack the old black aesthetic. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that, that, that war goes on even now with people who want to attack the black arts movement. Yes. I personally think that Baldwin, he tried to apologize to Wright. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he tried. I, he tried. But like you said, that was after he got that spanking, after you he got know, that wake-up call. You, you know my favorite Baldwin, and, and not to believe, you know my favorite Baldwin quote is about it? What? Baldwin, they asked Baldwin about it. He said, you know, when, when Eldridge Cleaver Right, attack me. I thought about. <laughs> yeah. I thought about how right we felt when I did it to him, and then Bowen paused and said, "I'm sure he didn't like it as much as I liked what Cleveland did to me." <laughs> so, and, and 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 I think though that that's the that's that's also the lesson that Wright is teaching us that those of us who want to have these discussions about Baldwin versus Wright and and Hurston versus Wright don't do enough reading yeah. to understand the long game. Right. Don't do enough reading to understand how white supremacist institutions use different black folk 
to destroy other black folk. Yeah. So I, I think that that and, and that again, we have to stop allowing an aesthetic difference always manifesting to a social political difference. Right. Because what you're ultimately doing is limiting the variety and depth of what it means to be an African person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, again, and I know that we're like oh, we want to keep within an hour. So there are a couple of things I I, I want to do, and I want to talk a little bit because we can't discuss black boy and not discuss religion. Right. Uh. And so I want to have you guys talk about what do you see right saying about religion, and you know, take into the context of what religion has meant for black folks in the civil rights movement. And so what 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 do you take from black boy? about what Wright is saying about religion, and then how do you then take that message and contextualize it to what you understand what religion has been for black folks? Ooh, ooh, boy, you just, you just, uh, I'm, a, I'm probably gonna get ran off uh, out of Mississippi for what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, one of my favorite quotes from Marx is about religion. I know where you're going. Marx said, the opiate of the masses. Yes. Now, having said that, I'm often fascinated with what I like to call the black Christian tradition, mm-hmm. which grows out of the Christian tradition. I think that Wright understood the role that religion played in the psychological healing of black people. I think he disliked the fact that the religion did not prompt them to fight. Right. Okay? Right. The problem that I see now with our with, 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 with Christianity is that it has moved away from its black liberation roots. Right. That it has moved away from its civil rights roots. Mm-hmm. It, it pains me to see, to go to West Jackson and see the poverty that's in West Jackson and know that there's a church damn near on every corner. Right. It mm. pains me to see these big churches in not just Jackson, but throughout the state, throughout the country, these big black churches who are more concerned about collecting tithes than they are concerned about feeding the hungry and the homeless. Right. Who it makes me wonder if they've even read the gospel, if they've even mm. if they even right. knew who Jesus was. Right. You know, um TD Snakes. Oh, oh. <laughs> I, I, okay, I know, okay, I'm gonna stop. Oh. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> but it, that, it, it goes back to this: how can we be so naive? Right, right. The the, the ministers that I love. Mm-hmm. Or the Gabriel Process, right? The Nat Turners, right? You know, uh, the Denmark Vesey's, right? The Albert Cleves, right? There you go. You know, I think again, Wright understood this contradiction. Mm-hmm. He understood that Jesus was a revolutionary, but if Jesus is telling us to turn out the other cheek when people are slapping us upside the head, I ain't with that. Right. I think that was one of the things that attracted him to Mark. Right. So what do you think, Celie? Uh, you know, I, I stand with where, where Charlie is, right? The whole point is that two things. One, there's the turn of the cheek, but I always tell people, you know, and I use Jesus' real name, Yeshira. I'm telling people, you know, I mean, his name, you know, where it could have been Jay, you know, that. So that I worship the Yeshira who, who, whooped, who whooped butt in the temple. 
who mm-hmm. ran the money changers out the temple, right? Is what Charlie's saying is that is that is that right understood that was a revolutionary aspect to black Christianity, right? And that's where he and Baldwin connected, right? Remember Baldwin said that there was a time when black people understood that the people who called themselves white Christians, there's no way they could get into heaven, treat black folks the way they treat. Right. So I think that for Wright, and particularly his confrontations with his aunt, right, in Black Boy, right, that that one of the things we say to people, if you're a Christian, you may be the only Bible that somebody reads. Right. You may be the only representation. And if his aunt was the only representation of Christianity, who would want to be a part of that? Mm-hmm. And I think what Wright is doing through the aunt is making all of us who claim any kind of religion, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, asking ourselves, what kind of representation am I of the faith that I'm claiming the, by, by which I live? Right. And so connecting with Charlie, that the aunt in Black Boy and many other people in Black Boy, it was not a liberating theology. It was a highly oppressive theology that basically became the opioid of the masses because it, it existed entirely to stunt the growth of liberation. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, he was painfully aware that that religion was handed down to them right. by their slave master. Right. What you do know, you think, say? I mean, shit, I, I agree. I, I can't, I can't, I can't. You know, I mean, I, I guess if I'm pushing myself to be more critical than I want to be, I, I guess I could say in Black Boy that, 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 like Charlie used the, the word dislike. I mean, I think there's a resentment of of Christianity in that in that, yeah. and and I completely get it. But I but you know, like I, I also get that there's some revelatory, you know, black liberatory practice mm-hmm. in folk who call themselves Christian that I think slid in the right, whether he knows it or not. You know right. what I'm saying? You know, so slides into all of us, whether all of us, all of us, all of us. But again, I think he appreciated the role that it played in helping us become sane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because keep in mind, you know, when you work in five days, six days a week, you know, working on the fields, you might want to, if you didn't have the church to go shout, you might <laughs> wind up slapping master and getting killed. Yeah, um, most definitely. Yeah. But I think he wanted the slap. <laughs> I think Richard Wright was the type to say, I will take, I will slap and die. Yeah. He left Mississippi because he knew if he didn't, he probably would have wound up dead. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have him. We wouldn't have him, man. We wouldn't have had it. Exactly. We wouldn't have yeah. had it. So have let, me, let me, uh, since we're getting close, I want to read this quote to you guys because uh, I want to come to looking at what Wright is saying about community building, right? And so this is from the version I have, page 318. And he says that the problem of human unity was more important than bread, more important than physical living itself. For I felt that without a common bond uniting men, without a continuous current of shared thought and feeling circulating through the social system, like blood cursing through the body, there could be no life worthy of being called human. And so... I want you guys to speak to particularly because 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 one of the things that gets played about right is because he was so willing to reject evil in the form of institutions, whether it was religion, whether it was community. You know, he eventually rejects the communism, uh, but right clearly understood 
institutional oppression. And so could you talk a little bit about in Black Boy, the, the, the figure there looking for some sense of community confrontation, community uniting in a way where we can be a force against the thing that is oppressing us? Well, I mean, I think Wright was in his heart. We talk about that, 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 that religion that seeped into him. I think in his heart, he was a minister the same way mm. James Baldwin was a minister. At the same time, he was a blues musician. Yeah. And, and one of the things that people who have that, that, that ministerial, that, that humanity, you want to see humanity come together. You want to see them come together to fight against oppression. Mm -hmm. I mean, at his heart, that's, that's a human thing. That's, that's something all of us want to do. You know, I think the problem, uh, Wright was constantly searching for, as to quote Amiri Baraka, he's constantly searching the world for an off, a hell for an off button. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what, that's what that passage speaks to me. We need to come together and form a community to stop the hell that's being reaped upon humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and us in particular and, and then for me it, it makes me think just building off of that Charlie like how possible is that in Black Boy and in Richard Wright's actual life without a kind of trust do you know I mean I think he I think we see him you know initially trusting individuals initially wanting to trust disbelief in the north wanting to trust communism but you know, if you really read right all the way through, I I could be reading them wrong, but like I'm not sure how you build community in the absence of trust. And trust really, you know, for what people where we from is, you know, people use the word faith. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing to stop people from going crazy, but it's also one thing that like kept people together. So like I'm I'm literally asking myself and y'all, like, did Richard Wright trust? Like, did he trust? Did he live a life? Did he trust black people? Did he? Did, did was there any black person in the world who he trusted when he died? And I don't know if I like what I think the answer to that question is, but what do y'all think? Let me let me answer it this way, and it may connect everything together because uh, it begins with religion and comes straight to your point. On page eighty-two, Wright says some of the Bible studies were interesting. Some of the Bible stories were interesting in themselves. But we always twisted them, secularized them to a level of our street life, rejecting our meaning that did not fit into our environment. So I think the answer, Kirsten, to your question is, Wright was simply disappointed mm. by the mass of black people who didn't do that, by the mass of black people who didn't take their faith and manifest their faith in the physical the way that actual text tells you to do so. I hear that. Right? What does Jesus say? Jesus said that faith without works is dead. Jesus basically said, well, Yeshira, and it's not, Yeshira says, right, that if your brother tells you he's hungry, and you say, I'm going to pray for you, mm. Yeshira says, you had to help your brother. Mm -hmm. Right. If your right. brother tells you he's naked, and you say, I'm going to pray for you, you had to help your, your brother need some food, he needs some clothes. So clearly what it says that right is saying on page 82 is that what, it, it, it wasn't so much a not trusting as much as was a disappointment that you got this blueprint 
that you claim to read. You got this blueprint that you claim to love, yet you're not using this blueprint to manifest your own freedom the way Yeshira wants you to manifest your freedom. Right. And, and, and the contradiction of that can drive one mad. Yes. It can certainly drive you mad if you are taught that this is the blueprint by which to live your life. Imagine that as a child. I mean, that was one of the things that used to confuse me as a child. And then I look around. I'm from Beartown. So you're telling me, okay, hey, Jesus is love, but apparently love is not extending to people in the street. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and Richard Wright was one of those people who was in the street. Mm-hmm. And if you live in the street, and if you are from poverty, you can't help but have a love for it. You're either going to love your people or you're going to hate them. Mm. I, th- I don't think that Richard Wright hated black people. I think he hated the oppression and he hated their inability to resist it. Yes. Mm. No, I, and, 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 love for black people is profound. In every word he wrote, it was yes, clear that that's he loved right. That's right. That's no question about that. Right. It's, it's like what Malcolm says, right? Malcolm says that, you know, they call this hate teaching. No, this love teaching. I'm teaching you to love yourself. Right. Right. And I think that's what Rich, I think Rich's ultimate disappointment wasn't so much with white supremacy. It was in what he saw the resources that we had that we just failed to use. Ooh. And it's, it's, and I always tell the analogy of all of us, you know, we're all sports people, Right. We all can name that one athlete that we think didn't live up to his talent because he didn't work hard. Right. Now, we're not going to call any names. Right. No, going to call nobody out. But we all know that one athlete that when you call that athlete's name, you get a sour taste in your mouth. Yeah. Not because he didn't have the talent. He didn't have the work ethic or the discipline. And I think Wright was always calling black people to the work ethic and the discipline and the courage to be. That's, that's you know, that is at the core, right, what, Blueprint of Negro writing is, right? It, it is, this is what we can be if we simply take the responsibility to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, I appreciate y'all for this, man. I, yeah. I, I needed hey. it so bad, bro. I needed it. I, I, I wish we could have done this in person, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully next year, y'all. Hopefully next year. Yeah. So let's, 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 let's close it on this then. So I want both of you guys to go through thinking about whatever you want to think about and what's the one or two things that you want people to get when they're reading Black Boy? I mean, uh, for me, I'll be, I'll be brief. Like, I, I want people to understand that we are reading a young Black boy and then eventually a young Black man attempt to protect himself and fight with, with, with literature and like his own imagine. So he wants it wants to be like um a shield and a conjurer. And I just think we need to understand and, and, and the main thing I want like like English lit people to understand is man, the dude wasn't like he was he he his aesthetics are in, incredible in that book. Like the, the writing in that book is phenomenal. Do you know what I mean? Like so 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 because the politics is so heavy, I think sometimes people think that the writing isn't. But so I think I think he's showing you in that book, one, how we can attempt to heal ourselves, how we have to confront that which we want to run away from, but how you can't do any of that if you don't read and you don't allow that reading to actually enable you to create words. Be that like, you know, now the question is, does it have to be literary? I don't know. But I think he's given us tools to heal ourselves as black boys from, from Mississippi. That's what I feel. 
Kiese, man, you, you summed it up uh, as best as anybody could, brother. But I will say the one thing that I think of when I read Black Boy is courage. Yes. Courage to know that no matter what you are confronted, the power of, with words can help you overcome it. Wright wrote that book thinking about you, me, mm. and every other small black boy that's living in Mississippi, that's in, uh, whether they're from Clarksdale, Macomb, Jackson, Aberdeen. He wrote that book. He wrote that book to tell us it is his blues testimony. Yeah. I've been through this. I made it through. Don't worry. You can do the same. Yeah. And, and I'll just close this out. I, we would be remiss to discuss Richard Wright and Black Boy and not to mention the great Dr. Jerry Ward. Uh, Amen. I also have to give a shout out to uh, uh, Dr. Howard Rams and also Dr. Marion Graham. All of them, both of them doing that great work. But I'll, I'll end with Jerry Ward brought something to my attention, you know, bring me back to after Wright, you know, in, in looking at, uh, you know, Blueprint Amigo writing and, and the praise that Wright had gotten for Uncle Tom's children. Mm. And that Wright was worried that he had made white people too happy. <laughs> right? And, and so after writing, he, he, he basically vows after writing Uncle Tom's children that he was done making white people feel good. Wow. And that what Black Boy and Richard Wright is about is about making America face the worst of itself. But here's the point that people miss. But also making Black people face both the worst and the best of themselves because you can't get to the best of yourself until you first overcome the worst of yourself. And you can't overcome the worst of yourself if you don't know what the worst of yourself is. And I think that both you, KSA, and Charlie, KSA with, with How to Kill Yourselves and Others and with Heavy, Charlie, you know, artists doesn't live anymore for me. Is, mm. is you know, I know, you know, you, you are a phenomenal poet, but your plays, and I think that both of you guys are in the tradition of right because you have always said to us through your writings as right has done in Black Boy, you can't get to the best of yourself while facing and understanding the worst of yourself. And I think in America today, is finally at a point where enough of us are following in Wright's words. We're going to make you face the worst of yourself and hope some healing come to it. Amen. Yes, indeed. So, Amen, bro. Uh, for the Mississippi Book Festival, I want to thank K.S.A. Lehman. I want to thank Charlie Braxton. Again, my name is Cindy McKinnis, and we thank you all for joining us. And join us next year in 2021 in the heat in Mississippi in August because it's going to be bluesy and it's going to be funky and it's going to be literary because nothing else. Two things we produce in Mississippi, well, more than two, we produce great blues artists, we produce great literature. And I stand on that and announce that to the world. Thank you guys. I want to thank uh, uh, Ellen Daniels for putting this together, and we're going to be at Thank you so much, y'all. Thanks. Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. <laughs>